Last Sunday, we kicked off a new sermon series on the transformed life. Now, you might think to yourself, well, that started last Sunday. What if I wasn't here? Well, you can catch up if you want to online at LibbyChristianChurch.com or again on the Libby Christian Church app. You can either listen or watch if you would like. But this morning, I want to start with a, a brief summary, just a very brief recap of what we talked about last Sunday so that we're all on the same playing field. Let's start with the definition of this word transformed or as we stretch it out in the church to transformation. Either way, this definition works. Here you go. Transformation means the act or process of changing completely. Now when we apply that biblically or when we apply that to our faith, our walk with the Lord, it is necessary for us to get into Scripture and look at what the Bible has to say about this act of transformation. We did that last Sunday. When we did, we found that the Bible will teach that there are two things that are very, very important for us to realize about transformation before it ever begins. Let me show you what I'm talking about. The book of 2 Corinthians. If you have a Bible, open to chapter 3, verse 18. And I'll show you two things you have to know about transformation before it ever starts. Two things. Here we go. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being, here's the word, transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, here's the two things that Paul is teaching the church in Corinth about transformation. Number one, it requires total, complete honesty. When he says, we all with unveiled faces... When he makes that statement, unveiled faces, he's saying all of us laid bare before the Lord. All of us, every one of us, with total, complete, 100% honesty. That's the honesty part of it. But then the second thing is, he shows us that transformation isn't a one-time act. It is a process. It begins with total honesty, and it is a process. Now, here's where we find the process in it. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. There's the process. That helps us understand that transformation doesn't just happen. It isn't something that just takes place in our life. It is a process. We move from one degree of glory to another. It is, let's go back to the definition, the act or the process of changing completely. The Bible lays that out for us. Now, once we wrapped our minds around that, we went into the effects of transformation or what it looks like when a person has experienced it. For that, we turn to Colossians chapter 1. Why don't you go there with me again? Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 9. And again, the Apostle Paul is the author of these words as well. Starting in verse 9, he writes, and so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, truly pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. 
May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Now, there's five things that come off the page when we read that passage. All five of these are characteristic of the transformed life. All five of these things are evident in a person that is in the process. Here they are, up on the screen for you one more time. Number one, the transformed person is filled with the knowledge of his will. Number two, the transformed person is walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Number three, The transformed person bears fruit in every good work. Number four, the transformed person is strengthened by all power or with all power. Number five, the transformed person gives thanks to the Father. Now, that's just five things. There are others that are listed in the passage we just read, but that's just five things that lift off the page very quickly that help us understand where we're at in the process, whether we are even in it, and how it is taking effect in our lives. Remember, transformation is a process. It is a process. So not all of these things are in place right away. They are things that begin to grow within us. When we desire this type of life with the Lord, there's something else that takes place. If you still have your Bible with you, we're going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians. Again, the Apostle Paul is the author of these words. That's going to be really important in just a minute. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, he writes, But as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Here's what Paul's teaching. When we are in the process of transformation, when we are choosing to walk closely with God in such a way that that transformation is taking place, that it is becoming visible to us and to others, the deep things of God are being revealed to us. And we're understanding them. We're figuring them out. Some of the things that are complete mysteries to the rest of the world begin to make sense to the transformed Christian. Things that others can't wrap their heads around or their hearts around or their life around become tangible to the person that is in the process of transformation, moving from one degree of glory to the next. If we had enough time today, I'd just ask you to tell me things that make sense to you today that didn't when you first came to know Christ. If we had enough time today, I'd say, share with me some of the passages of Scripture that you now understand that formerly were complete mysteries to you. You were completely clueless about them. That's how this works. The deep things of God are revealed to those that are in this process. 
things that the world will never have any idea about, things that the world will never understand. The transformed life, the transformed life gets into the depths of the Lord. Isn't that a cool promise? It really is. Isn't that a cool idea that I can understand things through the Spirit of the Lord that lives within me that without Him I would never be able to grasp? That's, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty remarkable. That's what the Lord does for us through His Son and through His Spirit. And one of the things, really interesting things, that we get to understand, boy, even though it's hard, one of the things we get to understand is the will of God for our lives. That was one of those five that we looked at. Do you remember that? Here it is again. The transformed person is filled with the knowledge of His will. You get to know God's will for your life. And that's where I want us to spend our time this morning. We're going to take all five of those things that we looked at out of Colossians chapter 1 over the course of this next month, and we're going to pick each one of them apart, but we're going to start right here. Being filled with the knowledge of God's will, knowing what He wants for us. Some of you are thinking, I'm not sure I'm anywhere near that in this process. That's okay. You are in good company. As we start this today, I'd be lying to you if I didn't just tell you in complete honesty that this is tough stuff. The knowledge of God's will has confounded Christians, well, since the time of Jesus. It has confused scholars since the time of Christ and even before that. So if you wrestle with knowing what God's will is for your life, know that you are in very good company. And the Bible actually tells us why it is so confounding and so confusing. Let's leave the New Testament and go to the Old for just a second. Book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 55. We'll start in verse 8. The old prophet writes, on God's behalf. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now if Isaiah, this well-respected prophet, would write words like that, why in the world would we ever believe? Why would we even begin to scratch at the surface of belief that we could know God's will? It seems like Isaiah chapter 55 verses 8 and 9 is our free pass to just walk away from the whole idea. It seems like in Isaiah chapter 55, we not only get a free pass, but, but we get an excused absence from the discussion. If God's ways are higher than my ways, if His thoughts are not my thoughts, then why would I ever think that I could get involved in something so complicated that I could make it personal to the point that I would say I am filled with the knowledge of His will? Why would that ever happen? Because God has given us something. And Paul told us what that something is. It's not actually a something, it's a someone. God gave us his Spirit, so that we could understand these things. Without the Holy Spirit, walk out of the conversation. But if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you have the ability to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. 
Now, you still may look at this and say, if Isaiah is saying things like this in, in chapter 55, I'm not even sure I want to venture into this. So, preacher, you just go ahead, finish the message, and I'm going to write it all off. Don't. Because there are other places in Scripture that ought to bring you back into the conversation faster than you could ever leave it. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Join me in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 8. When you find verses like this, they ought to inspire you to discover the will of God. Verse 28. And we know that those who love God, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Hmm. Now I'm intrigued. If all things are going to work together for the good of all those who are called according to His purpose, and I am called according to His purpose because I am a Christian, I am a believer in Jesus, I am filled with the Spirit, then maybe I do want to know what God's will is. Because if His will is going to bring about good things in my life, then I want to make sure that I stay within it. If His will is going to work everything that happens to me, in me and around me for God's good purposes, I don't want to miss out on it. So maybe I should stay in the conversation. Maybe I should come back into it even when I am tempted to walk out of it, even when I am confounded and confused, even when it makes no sense to me. Maybe I should dig in. Maybe I should entrench myself in discussions like this so that I can determine God's will. I want to stay in it. I want to be a part of it. Well, once we make that decision, the process begins for us in transformation that will lead us to a place where we can be filled with all knowledge of God's will. That's pretty remarkable. It's pretty remarkable. But I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that it's still difficult. I don't want us to move past that too quickly. Because as I said, I'd be lying to you if I said this was easy. I'd be lying to you if I said that this was something that that just comes naturally for people. It doesn't. Even as Paul would write these words in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, you have to know that he did that in the year 57 AD. It is incredibly important for you to remember that date, 57 AD. You know what? I want to make sure that it stays with you. So oftentimes when we hear things, about 50% of the people will retain that. But when we say them back, we get that up to about 90%. So say it with me. Paul wrote these things in 57 AD. Now that's only about 20% of you. So let's try for a little higher percentage. Paul wrote this in 57 AD. That is very, very important. And let me show you why. Paul in the book of Galatians will actually show us that he struggled with the issue of God's will in his life. He'll be very plain about it. So why don't you open your Bibles to the first chapter of the book of Galatians and look for where he does it. We're going to start in verse 1 of chapter 1. If you've been around Libby Christian Church very long at all, you know that that it is really important to me to teach you to read for emotion and to read Scripture very small. 
looking for small things, which means don't just read Scripture to be able to put a check mark on the box that says, I've been through the book of Galatians. You may have been through the book of Galatians and never remembered one thing from it. That's a tragedy. So you have to read small, and by reading for emotion, you can read small. Today, what we're looking for is the emotion behind Paul's words and the moment within the passage that we are about to read where Paul says, God's will has been a struggle for me. We'll start in verse 1. Here we go. Paul, an apostle, not from men through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For I am now seeking, for am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. Now, this is where his testimony begins. Listen close. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy." And they glorified God because of me. Chapter 2, verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential. The gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. And from there we get into some doctrinal things in the book of Galatians. Did you catch the moment in that where Paul said he was struggling to make sure he was in God's will? He laid out his testimony for you. Did you catch it? Chapter 2, verse 2. Look at it again. At least this is where it comes off the page for me. 
And I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, here it is, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. Right there, Paul says, for 14 years, for 14 years I'd been training for this moment and I needed to make sure. I needed to make sure that the message I was preaching was right. I needed to make sure that I was doing what I was supposed to because up until this point, I was still pretty much an unknown. I'd been called by Jesus on the road to Damascus, struck blind and told that I was going to be a preacher to the Gentiles, but for the last 14 years, that hasn't really been happening. Oh, I've done some preaching and I've had some small impact in the places that I've been, but nothing major as of yet. And I needed to make sure that what I was preaching, what I was saying, what I was teaching was right. Fourteen years he wrestled with the will of God. For fourteen years he had been struggling with whether he had actually heard what he had heard, if he had been changed the way he believed he had been changed. For fourteen years the Apostle Paul struggled with this. Have any of you ever struggled with knowing the will of God? Here, let me just ask you. Raise your hand. Those of you that have struggled with it, have you ever struggled knowing whether you were right in the center of it? Am I doing what I am supposed to be doing? Boy, you're in good company. You're right there with the Apostle Paul. You are not alone in this. This last fall, Liz and I taught a class called Life Mapping, and there was a great response to it, wonderful turnout in that. If you weren't a part of it and would like to know more about Life Mapping, either one of us would be happy to talk with you about that. What Paul just laid out for us was a portion of his life map. It's highly intriguing. If you were paying attention, it's very, very interesting. Let me show you his life map as Paul would describe it in the Bible and as the Bible would fill in a few blanks for us. Here we go. We'll just put it up on the screen. We're going to go really fast through this. Somewhere around the year 6 AD, Paul was born a Roman citizen to Jewish parents in Tarsus. That is modern eastern Turkey. So then follow us on through his map. From the years 20 to 30 A.D., he studied the Torah in Jerusalem with Gamaliel, and that's when he became a Pharisee. In the years 30 through 33, he persecuted the followers of Jesus of Nazareth in Jerusalem and Judea. And some of these dates are ambiguous. They're, they're a little bit loose, but we know for three years he was persecuting the church. That's what Paul was doing, and he was doing it with great zeal. In the year 33, he was converted on the way to Damascus, and then he spent three years in Arabia. Then he returned to Damascus to preach Jesus as Messiah. Now, let's stop there for just a second. If you go to the book of Acts and you read in chapter 9, you'll read all of that. His conversion, the three years in Arabia, and his return to Damascus. And here's one of the, the really interesting things that you will discover in that. When he went back to preach in Damascus... He caused so many problems that the disciples that were there had to get him out of the city under the cover of darkness. They had to save his life and save their work by getting Paul out of there. Now, can you imagine after three years of preparation with such a miraculous, dramatic call into ministry, what it was like when they came to him and said, Paul, we need to show you the door and we need to show it to you quickly 
get out of here. You are destroying what we have been working for. Please leave. That's what happened to Paul. In 36, he flees Damascus because of what we just talked about. And then he visited Jerusalem where he met with the apostles. And in Galatians chapter 1, he tells us that that was with Peter and with James, the brother of Jesus. And you know what happened after his two weeks there? They had to show him the door. He was causing problems in Jerusalem. Because Paul, this former persecutor of the church turned preacher, nobody could believe it. So they had to get him out of there. And the Bible tells us that when they did, this is, these are not words any preacher ever wants to hear. The church enjoyed a time of great peace because Paul was gone. That's, that's not what you want to hear. Now you're starting to see a little bit of his wrestling match. Did God really say that to me? Did Jesus really call me to this? This isn't making sense because when I try to preach, all I do is cause problems. When I try to teach, it is disrupting everything. What do I do with that? 36 through 44, for eight years, he, he just went home. He went back to Tarsus. Remember, that's where he was born. And he preached there and in the surrounding region. And he had, he had good effect, but it wasn't what the Lord had called him to. In the year 44 AD, he was invited by Barnabas to teach in Antioch. That's a cool story. Barnabas came and found him in Tarsus. Barnabas needed a partner in ministry in and he had met Paul, and he knew what Paul was capable of. Barnabas, ever the encourager, went and got him. He said, why don't you come to Antioch with me, and, and let's preach there. And they did. And it was in Antioch that believers were first called Christian. Paul was a part of that. But he still wasn't having the impact that he believed he should. So then in 46, along with Barnabas, he visited Jerusalem to bring famine relief back into that area. And everything changed. From that point, everything changed. In the year 47, his first missionary journey with Barnabas happened. They went to Cyprus and Galatia. Remember where we just read his story from? Book of Galatians? That happened in 47, 48. Then moving on through it, 49, there was the Council of Jerusalem. Paul argued successfully that Gentile Christians need not follow Jewish law. Then he returned to Antioch, where he confronted Peter over questions of Jewish law. In the year 49 through 52, his second missionary journey with Silas happened through Asia Minor and Greece until he settled in Corinth, and he writes the letter to the Thessalonians. In 52 AD, he visits Jerusalem and Antioch briefly, and then he begins his third missionary journey. 52 through 55, he stays in Ephesus and writes the letter to the Galatians and the Corinthians. And 55 through 57, he traveled through Greece and possibly Illyricum, Il Il let me say that right, modern Yugoslavia, and he writes the letter to Romans, to the Romans. In the year, do you remember what we said? 57 AD. Now let's finish out his life. 57 through 59, he returns to Jerusalem where he's arrested and imprisoned at Caesarea by the sea. 59 through 60, he appears before Festus and appeals to Caesar, and then there's a voyage to Rome. 
60 through 62, he's under house arrest at Rome. He writes a letter to the Philippians, the Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon. 62 through 64, he is released from prison. He journeys to Spain, writes the letters to Timothy and Titus, and in 64, he returns to Rome where he is martyred for the burning of Rome. He is falsely accused, along with Peter, of being the ones who set fire to the city while Nero watched, and they were martyred for that act. In 57 AD, he wrote Romans chapter 8, verse 28, years after he became a Christian, 24 years after he became a Christian. And in that 24-year period, there was a 14-year period where he, he wrestled with God's will. He wrestled with knowing whether he was doing the right thing. Boy, that's interesting to find Paul saying that. However, after his first missionary journey, when he left with Barnabas that first time, there is no record of Paul ever wondering about it again. There was validation after validation, including imprisonments, things that wouldn't make sense to most of us. But for Paul, by the time 57 AD rolled around, he was able to even see those imprisonments, the persecutions, as part of God's will and the spread of the gospel. He'd gotten to a place in his life where he could say, but God works all things together for the good of those who believe and are called according to his purpose. New perspective. But there was a 14-year period of humanity in Paul's life that seemed to rub right up against his apostleship where just like us, he said, is this right? Am I where I am supposed to be? And I know a lot of you have been there. So have I. So have I. Let me illustrate it for you this way. When Tina and I first got married, I was a destination traveler. And that, that's lasted for a long time. In many ways, I'm still a destination traveler, but things are changing. Here's what I mean by that, and I've shared this with you before. When we would plan a trip, whatever that trip might be, we would grab the map and we would chart the fastest course to wherever we were going. Because my belief was that we didn't really start on a vacation or a trip didn't begin until we got to the destination. And once we got there, then we could start relaxing. Then we could start enjoying ourselves. Oh my gosh, there are so many of you looking at one another going, that's you. <laughs> that's good stuff. As the years have gone by, some of that has changed for me. I've gotten to a place where the journey is more important to me than the destination. I've gotten to a place where I enjoy the journey more. We start talking about who we can see along the way, what we can experience along the way, rather than just getting to where we're going. So I'm becoming a journey traveler as opposed to a destination traveler. Well, the same thing has happened in my walk with Christ. I used to believe that the destination was the only thing that mattered to God, and therefore it was the only thing that should matter to me. So I, I always saw the end goal, if you will, as where I was headed and, and the only thing that was important, knowing that that was all that mattered to God, the destination. Well, as I've gotten older and I have a few more years behind me and a few more miles on the trail, I've come to the place that I realize that the journey matters more to God than the destination. Because if the destination is the only thing that matters to God, He's little more than a genie in a bottle. We just pray about the destination. We just pray about the goal. 
and then God gives us the goal, and then we start working on the next goal. Well, that isn't the way our life in Christ is designed. Our life with Jesus is about the journey. Oh, certainly the destination, which is to stand in His presence, is of the utmost importance, and that's what salvation is all about. But transformation, transformation is about the journey, what happens in the process, what takes place along the way, how we react to those things, both the good and the bad. Because if we believe the Bible, that God works all things together for the good of those who believe and have been called according to His purpose, then even the bad comes into play. It's the journey that matters. I could give you a number of different illustrations, personal illustrations, but really the Bible does a better job of illustrating it for us than anything else we could come up with. All we have to do is get past the first three chapters of Genesis where the destination of Adam and Eve was the Garden of Eden and they were in the presence of the Lord. Once they were out of the presence of the Lord, then the journey becomes evident all the way through the Bible. Ask Noah about the hundred years it took to build the ark. The journey was important. He preached the entire time. Ask Moses about the first 80 years of his life. He'll tell you about the journey. Ask Joseph what it was like growing up in his father's home until eventually he was living in Pharaoh's home. He'd tell you about the journey so that he could get to a place where Joseph could say, with all authority, what was intended for evil, God uses for good. He only learned that through the journey. Talk to Abraham about leaving Ur of the Chaldeans to get into the promised land, only to leave again to go back to Egypt and then the journey. The Bible is all about the journeys. When we get into the New Testament, we could ask Peter about his life as a fisherman that set the stage for him to become a fisher of men, the journey. We could talk to Peter about apostleship and what it meant to him and the journey through that, his three years of training with Jesus that seemingly ended with him betraying the Lord to the restoration that happened in John chapter 21 and preaching at Pentecost. It was the journey. It was the journey. We could talk to Nicodemus about his three-year journey from meeting Jesus in the dark until he, along with Joseph of Arimathea, carried the cross, or didn't carry the cross, they carried the body of Jesus until they were able to bury him. We could talk to Lazarus about journeying from life to death to life to death. That's a journey. That's Lazarus's journey. We could talk to the Apostle John about his journey. He lived longer than any of the other apostles to the point that he actually wrote the revelation of Jesus at the end of our Bible. That was his journey. He was boiled in oil. He was banished to a prison island. Yet John stayed faithful all the way through to the end. We could talk to the authors of biblical prophecy about the journey from the presentation initially of the gospel to the second coming of Jesus. We could talk to believer after believer about their journey. It's all about journey. And the reason it is, listen to me, the reason it is, listen to me, the reason it is, is because it's in the journey that transformation happens. And Jesus is all about transforming his children changing our lives. And it's the act or the process of it. And if we want to know His will, there it is. 
God's will is this transformation that happens in the life of His children. My friends, I mean this with all of my heart, so please accept it the right way. This is one of those times that I have to tell you that, that you didn't ask me to be your preacher just to love on you. You asked me to be your preacher to say hard things to you. So here's some of those hard things. You have to grow up in your faith to understand that. You have to grow up in your faith to understand that. The immature Christian, the baby Christian, holds on to just the destination belief of Christ. It is the mature Christian that says the process, the journey matters. You have to grow up to embrace that. So grow up. Grow in to the journey. Grow in to the transformation process and watch what God does. And you may say, okay, that's, that sounds great, Phil. It sounds great. How does the journey begin? Well, obviously, it begins in salvation. It begins in you surrendering your life to Christ. So let's just accept that as the baseline of it. From there, the journey takes some dramatic steps based on what we do with what we have seen from the Lord. We're going to go through these really fast, just three things, but join me in the book of Isaiah, will you? Isaiah has been called the most noble of all the prophets. We ought to pay attention to what he writes. We ought to spend more time in his book than we do. Because listen to this. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now that's, that's Isaiah telling us what he has seen and what an incredible depiction that is. And we don't have enough time to get into the seraphim and how this is the only place in the Bible they show up and who are they. We don't have enough time to get into that. What we do have enough time for is the understanding that what Isaiah experienced was watching as the angels called back and forth to one another, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then look at his reaction. Woe is me. For I am lost. I read it for you out of the English Standard Version just a minute ago. Take a look at it from the New Living Translation. Then I said, it's all over. I am doomed, for I am a sinful man. I have filthy lips, and I live among a people with filthy lips. Yet I have seen the King, the Lord of Heaven's armies. That's Isaiah saying, there's no hope. I'm done. Based on what I just saw, the holiness of heaven, I am done. But I want you to see God's response. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. God's been dealing with our sin, our realization of our unworthiness long before Jesus came. And then when Jesus came, it was all taken care of. All sin was atoned for. So what do you do with what you have seen? 
For Isaiah, he ends up saying, here am I, Lord, send me. I'll do whatever you want me to do. I am your servant. His life was changed. What do you do with what you have seen from the Lord? How do you handle what he has done for you? That's the first step in this process. The next deals with how we handle what we hear. This is still from Isaiah, the 30th chapter, verse 21. Listen to this. And your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walk in it, when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Now Isaiah is talking about the voice of God through the prophets for the nation of Israel. Today we would apply that as the voice of the Spirit behind us. You hear the voice of the Spirit saying, here's what you should do. Here's the way you should go. Now walk in it. So what do we do when we hear that? There are different ways that we actually hear it that our ears get tuned to the voice of the Lord. The first is through the Bible. So when we're wrestling with something, we open up our Bible and we look for what God has already said about it. And the Bible speaks to a number of different things, most everything in life. Go searching the Scripture to see what God has to say about it. That's how you'll know whether you're in His will or not, because if He's already said, do it, do it. Don't argue with Him, do it. If God says this is the way it's supposed to be, you can try like so many people are today to say, well, God, I'm not sure that you really mean that for me. You probably mean that for other people, but I'm not sure you mean that for me. So I'm going to try it over here my way first. Well, let me just tell you, that ends in disaster. So if God's word says it, do it. Just do it. There doesn't need to be any argument, no discussion, just do it. But if you can't find the answer in the Bible and you have exhausted all of the resources to try to find the answer in God's Word, then you start praying very specifically and listening very specifically for that voice because we have the Spirit within us. The Israelites had to listen to the voice of the prophets. We have the Holy Spirit within us. You listen to that voice. When the voice directs you, you go that way. You follow it. You do what you're supposed to do. You follow the voice. I have listened to that voice more times than I can count. And man, I've always been glad I have. And I've ignored that voice too many times as well. And I've always wished I could push the the rewind button and do it the other way. So you listen to the voice. And you trust me on this. The Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit speaks. So you listen. You figure out what you're going to do with what you have seen from the Lord. You figure out what you're going to do with what you hear from the Lord. And then this one is just so simple. Then once you know what God wants for you, you do it. You just do it. James, the brother of Jesus that Paul met, says this in James chapter 1. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Verse 22, but do, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you want to know about the will of God, if you want to know how to discern it, when it comes to you, do what you were told and then watch what happens. Most of the, the struggle that we have with knowing the will of God, being filled with the knowledge of it, is first and foremost 
not knowing for sure, not hearing, not being convinced, just like Paul, 14 years. I'm just not sure. It hadn't been clear to me. But the second struggle we have is in obedience because we want to kick against it. So just do what you're told. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. That's how you're filled with the knowledge of the will of God, by just moving within it. Do what you're supposed to do. For those 14 years, Paul did what he was supposed to do. God didn't show him the full extent of his will until he left on that first missionary journey in 47 AD. Then there was no question, no question at all. You do the same. You be faithful with what you have. God will reveal the future to you in his time. You want to be filled with the knowledge of God's will? It starts with a daily choice. Do what you know to do today. God will take care of tomorrow. I'm going to leave you with this as the worship team comes. Wish we had more time to discuss this. We don't. We'll never make it through everything that we need to in January if we bog down on all these things. And this message has already gone longer than it was supposed to. So here you go. There are two sides to God's will. There is His directed will and His permissive will. God's directed will deals with things like the law of nature, the law of creation, and it deals with salvation. That's God's directed will. It is God's directed will that all people will come to repentance and know Him. That's God's directed will. Salvation is covered within God's directed will. Then there's the permissive will of God. God has given us giftedness, He has given us common sense, He has given us a brain, He has given us a direction, a place within His kingdom, and then He has given us a great deal of freedom. In God's permissive will, we have the ability to make choices. Now, God will, at times, intervene. He'll slam some doors closed for us. How many of you have had doors closed? You know what I'm talking about. When God closes a door, the prudent thing to do is not argue with it. It's just to accept that that's not the way to go. That's a closed door. But there's still a lot of permissiveness within God's will for you to say, okay, if that's not the direction, then I'm going to go here. And if God isn't closing the door, then okay. But how do we know whether we should go to the right or to the left? Well, it all begins with a simple question. Here it is. Will my choice honor God? That's where it starts. If the answer is no, then don't do anything. If the answer is yes, then move ahead. And then keep asking that question. Will my next decision honor God? Will my next choice honor God? As long as the answer is yes, keep moving. If you don't know, then be still. Then be still. Just stop whatever you're doing and be still until such a time that God says, now move. That is the story of the 14 years of Paul's life. It was a lot of stillness with some small steps until God said, now go. You want to be filled with the knowledge of God's will? Apply the same things, and then you will get to learn the deep things of God. Father in heaven, this is such a powerful subject. I appreciate the attention of everyone here today. And Father, I appreciate your presence. So thank you for being with us as we wrestle our way through these deep things. 
But Father, help us wrestle through unto transformation, the process of it, from one degree of glory to the next. It's my prayer right now for those that haven't begun the process. Would you let that start today? And Father, it's my prayer for those that are in the midst of it and confused. Would you bring clarity to them today? Father, my prayer is for those that are trying to make the next decision, the next choice. Would you help them see the one that honors you? Father, it's my prayer for those that are worried for others. Would you respond to their prayers? Asking all of that in Jesus' name, with great faith and as much patience as we can muster as we wait for you. In Jesus' name. Amen.